Hello, everyone. You are listening to another episode of The Long Journey Home. I am your host, Corbin Johnson, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode. This past weekend, I had the privilege of playing in a traditional tournament, and for second edition, of course, and found it to be very, very, very interesting. So I thought I'd go through what happened and what I took away from it. So join me, will you? I'm on my way home from work right now. It was a long day, but I'm on my way home. Gonna go on, go have some dinner tonight with the fiance. So, first things first. I brought a Starfleet traditional deck to this tournament. I had no intention of bringing the best deck, and I didn't know if I was going to win or not, but I wanted to bring something competitive. My opponents didn't bring... Well, let's just say they were in the mood for achievements and weren't necessarily looking for the win either. So, one opponent brought a homebrew of Terraknor mixed with Starfleet that forgot a key mission and was unable to win in the game I played. It was four of us total, so it was round robin. Another opponent brought a Klingon starter from 2nd edition and... Although it was solid, it just and had answers to some things in my deck, it just wasn't fast enough. And then one person brought Klingons with the sole intention of blowing things up, which was kind of cool. However, it just was kind of slow, or was slower against me. So, so I had a very solid deck that used Cypher Sorais and Howard Cost. It used Machinations for trying to make sure the opponent to make sure that you could bust out key dilemmas at key times. I'd never used Machinations before and found it just a very interesting card and maybe consider maybe using it in an actual build. And yeah, what else? Did it have some other weird janky jank? Oh, it had the Phoenix and Exceed engine output and the mission uh, where you can repair things. So That was actually pretty cool and it had a one of the it was a Tucker that could replace one skill with two engineer. I never used that to any purposeful gain, but it was still interesting to try it. I'd never used it before. Uh, the only Starfleet builds I've played are Mirror and Dam placed the Future Enterprise with the damaged people. So it was interesting to play traditional Starfleet and just see what the ciphers take on Starfleet was. The 10 points that Starfleet earns for solving the first space mission were, I think I needed them to 70, no, I, I 60 plus 35 is 95. So I did need them to win my game with three missions. I'm not sure I had another way to score five points. Oh, I guess I did. If I used a site for sore eyes and destroyed the event before I solved my first mission, I guess I could have the extra five points that way. I had Devella in the deck, but I wasn't sure how to destroy the event with Devella without, and I would have had to somehow discard all the cards in my hand. The only easy way to do that, there was there's an archer that lets me discard cards, and I guess some of my dilemmas would do that too. Anyway, it was a fun deck, 
I went 3-0, and one mod win, two full wins, and had a great time. I felt bad for my opponents, but for, you know, I mean, <laughs> we kind of talked about this in uh, two shows ago where you have to consider that although it's a... Do you, do you <laughs> Winning graciously, I guess, is the topic at hand here. When one faces an opponent with little chance of winning, how does one win graciously? And I say, with a smile and a handshake. You don't need to point out your opponent's flaws unless you are the superior player and you know you have solid advice to offer them. I don't feel bad, let's say, for example, I've been playing 1E for 13 years. I don't feel bad pointing out a couple of suggestions at the end of a game for an opponent, especially if they're egregious errors that definitely should be addressed. But in this case, (laughs) if I win a game, I say, good game, and shake their hand, and we leave it at that, because they know what they're doing. These people are fantastic players who've been playing for many years and have been playing much longer than I have. So winning graciously is important for just being a well-rounded player, in my opinion. So so what did I take away from playing in a traditional tournament? This is the second traditional tournament I've played in. The first one I played in, I brought Starfleet Cadets. No, Star, I brought Federation Cadets. I don't think I won the day. Everyone brought fairly competitive decks that time. And that was fun to get a chance to play traditional. This time, I got to play traditional again with a different affiliation and get a feel for what Decipher was trying to do. The first time, cadets from the Decipher era versus the Continuing continuing Committee era, not much has changed. There is in development and more dilemmas that are supposed to deal with it. But even so... The cadets are basically the same build. Starfleet, on the other hand, I've never played Starfleet, obviously, without the new cards from the Continuing Committee. So it was interesting to try out the Columbia and get the range boost and try out the Malcolm Reed and try out some weird archer. I actually didn't get to try out the archer. The archer was from Dangerous Missions. I never got to use him, unfortunately. And a lot of the cards I didn't get a chance to use, I ended up just solving my missions very straightforwardly. But it was interesting to see. The skill the skill matrix for Starfleet seemed pretty reasonable with the missions I tried. There were times where I just had only one person with a certain skill, and that was kind of annoying. But at the end of the day, I still was able to get through the missions, and I had a great time. So thank you to all of my opponents for having fun, and, you know, it was kind of interesting. We had a storm alert as the game was progressing, as all the games progressed. It was very windy outside, and, you know, we've probably all heard about the crazy winds we had on Sunday, but it was great, and we all had a great time. So, again, just, I won, I feel like, I hope I won graciously, I hope everyone had a good time. And I finally got a power shift. Yay, power shift foil. So that's great. All right, well, I've got a little bit more time here. So I thought I'd kill it by talking about what we're seeing in Emissary and whatnot. 
I did work on Emissary, but you're not going to find any spoilers here, unfortunately. I'm only going to be able to talk about cards that I've seen so far. So let's hope I don't actually make any uh, things up as we go along here. I will point out that uh, hopefully I will have an article published this week on an upcoming card from the set that my article will spoil. So I am very excited about that. Uh, it is a card I worked on and came up with on my own, and hopefully it will be interesting. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But it, let's see what, let's talk about Emissary. So Emissary is the new set for Block, everyone knows that, and I'm excited. We were in the chat room on Saturday night, and I was just saying with Charlie how the things I'm excited for, basically, are that we're going to have a Block that is pure Block, not the Phoenix block. That's great. We're going to be able to finally explore block for what it was meant to be. And we'll see how that goes. I I don't know how popular block is of a format. I still don't know. And as I've mentioned on podcasts previously, my hope when designing block sets is that design considers block format first before constructed format, but doesn't neglect constructed format as well. So I hope that we achieve those goals, and we can only know if we did as time goes on and Emissary gets into players' hands. And so one of the Warp Cork, was it a Warp Cork card that came out? I think it's the one that came out today. It's, uh, I miss this office. I love the image on it. What a fantastic image. Johnny hears it over and over again, I'm sure, but his art is amazing. So this card allows Cardassians to basically have uh, a way to report to Teraknor for free. But you might say, oh, well, what if my opponent has seated Deep Space Nine? Well, it then says, well, instead of giving you uh, the ability to see Teraknor, well, we'll give you an outpost that you can play things to. So this is cool. So either you, it, it assumes you're going to try to see Teraknor, you're going to fail at it, and then, because you have to have Teraknor if your opponent has not seeded you Space Nine, and then if you don't get Teraknor, well, here's your consolation prize of an outpost that you basically get to put anywhere after you know where your opponent has seeded their stuff. That's really cool. That's something I don't think we've ever seen before in, uh, in uh, Block. I mean, yes, it's kind of that way already, but... Okay, it is already that way. I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. You do get some... Uh, free plays, of course. You get the Silver Star and the Teraknor personnel. And there's plenty of those guys to go around. It, I'm not sure how helpful it's going to be in block, but it will be very helpful, I think, in constructed play. And it should be interesting to see that paired with uh, uh, anything, really. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see what decks can be built around it. Just a general way of making Cardassians play faster, and what sites people are going to choose to go with it, because 
it, it's not, it doesn't enable you to report to a place, but it enables those reports to report for free. So we'll see, maybe uh, Garrick's Tailor Shop or something like that. Uh, we'll, we'll play in interestingly with this on a Tarok Noor. And I, the, the Cardassian uh, Odo that we saw is really cool. Uh, speaking of that, I, I do like that he can capture a guy once per game, a lot like Ilan Tondro. And I think it might be interesting to see, you know, capturing people is still relatively hard in one e other than outgunned, and outgunned really isn't a guarantee of being able to capture anyone. But Overseer Odo will be interesting, especially as, oh, especially in block where you'll be in the same quadrant as your opponent. You can, you know, meander on over. He could be thrown into, you know, almost any deck, not a TNG deck, obviously, but he could be thrown into a deck and just go capture a guy. And say, ha ha, I got your guy, now what are you gonna do, loser? So that's kind of fun. I mean, there was Taken Prisoner for that already, uh, but Taken Prisoner was has been you know, hard to pull off, or ensnared too, right? Um, so, I, you know, as I designed Cardassians, I'm really hoping that they're going to be able to capture more and have that flavor, kind of that dripping capture flavor of 2e bring it home to 1E and see what happens and try to make sure Cardassians are kind of a cool affiliation to play and give you something that the other affiliations just don't. So hopefully the power will be balanced enough. Uh, you'll still get free plays for my Miss This Office, but you're going to be able to capture cards with Odo and things like that. So I, I do hope that as, and, and you'll see as Emissary develops, that there'll be interesting ways to take advantage of, uh, of these cards. So there's, there's just a teeny weeny little spoiler for you there that I'm not authorized to give. So there you go. Y'all should be very excited for what's going on with Cardassians. The missions look cool, uh, or whatever. I think we've, maybe we've only seen one mission. Uh-oh. And uh, that mission is pretty cool. Uh, the ability to seed the Bajoran mission wherever you want to in regards, you, you can seed it, I think it says within or outside the Bajoran region. So if, you're, if you're, your idea is to do some, some interesting Bajoran region thing, and I, I forget if the mission itself is Bajoran region. I, I don't think it is, but I, I have to check. If it is, that might open up some interesting possibilities for the Mirror Quadrant for multidimensional transport device, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, you know, the art again is really nice. And it's a 40 point mission with a lot of affiliations that can try to uh, solve it. And so that, that should be fun. And of course, you know, we, we do have Homefront 4, which is almost all missions. The design team listened to the players and finally made, uh, hopefully made up for the problem of a lack of missions in block and hopefully that will be um, an issue that you know was solved or is is at least in a better shape than it was so other cards that have come out in emissary there was the spoiler on the game show better go listen to that game show uh, episode 23 if you want to see uh, what spoiler 
uh, Charlie, or uh, I was given uh, to spoil. It was pretty cool. And that's a card I will definitely play in uh, Cardassian decks. So, other cards that look cool. The supplemental's coming along nicely, it looks like. Um, yeah, I'm having a hard time remembering what's been spoiled there. But I like, I do like that we are... You can see a focus here. Uh, 81 cards in the set, 81 cards in the supplemental. The focus here is to leverage what's been created already and make sure that we're getting the most bang for our buck when it comes to playtesters. And potentially in the starters, we didn't want to have to make a slew of odds and ends of people to throw in starters. And I think you're going to see that uh, reflected inside of both Emissary and the Supplemental. All right, well, I think that's enough talking about Emissary for right now. Ah, and finally, sorry about that, uh, one other, you know, I thought uh, another interesting topic that maybe I discussed tonight as I'm battling traffic here is... Uh, well, first of all, a uh, shout-out to Dan Madison, who is recording a new episode of Assimilate This Tonight with Ryan Sutton, who is in, I believe, the Tennessee... He's a leader of the Tennessee playgroup, and they're doing some interesting things out there. So be sure to catch the new episode of Assimilate This coming out sometime this week, hopefully tonight. Uh, and thanks, of course, for showing up on the game show and having a good time with us yes, on uh, Saturday. So one more topic as I am sitting here is that I am... Uh, I, so I just moved into my new house. I love it. And one question that comes to mind for all players at some point as they amass their crazy collection is how am I going to sort and store this collection? So, a few months ago, I undertook sorting my second edition and first edition sets, and I did it in a way that I thought made sense at the time to maximize, or I guess to leverage the uh, card boxes I had already, and that was to sort everything by card type and then by subtype. So I did it into a card type. Uh, if the card had to do with a certain affiliation, I popped it with the affiliation. And that it makes apparent sense in 2e, because a lot of cards key off of having three of a certain affiliation in play. So that made sense. And then sorted everything into card type, and then put them all into boxes. Uh, 800 count boxes. That seems to have worked out okay. And I also sorted by rarity. So all the rares are with each other and all the commons and uncommons are with each other. Eh, I don't know about that. That's not necessary. I found that to be not terribly unimportant or important. I, I, I do in my head know when I think of a certain card what rarity it is. So that, that, wasn't a, that isn't a problem for me. But it... Uh, it's a it's a way of sorting cards that I have found 
is not terribly good at random access. If I want to find any card in my collection right now, I know which box it's in, and I know roughly where inside that box it is. And then once I've found the card and I need to go to another card, um, it can be messy to keep my place in the box if I use either another card or a sheet of paper or something so that I can either put the card back or not or whatever. Uh, the issue I really find though is when I'm decompiling a deck, I can sort it into card type and then I can go to the card types box and put it all back one by one and that's fine. Uh, eventually as new sets, oh and the other problem is I don't really sort the virtual sets as they come out. Uh, whenever I need a new virtual card, I usually print it when I need it. And then when I don't need it, I either throw it away or I put it in a pile of cards somewhere. Because the rarity sorting isn't terribly conducive. I could put it in a virtual uh, pile inside the card type, I suppose. And that's probably not a terrible idea. So, I don't know. One sorting method that I have seen that I really like, and I've been considering changing to is one my good friend Eric uses where he has all of his cards in binders and they're sorted by set. So when he needs at what cost, he goes to the necessary evil section and goes to the card number and pulls it out. And that's it. And so that seems fairly straightforward and reasonably good at expanding as new sets come out. So he can just print a new set, pop it in, and he's good to go. So I kind of like that. I find the appeal of being able to just put cards where, uh, being able to expand the uh, sets as it, go, as it goes. And they're nine card binder sheets. And I think it makes a lot of sense. So I have been considering changing over to that. And I like the pros that come with it. Uh, what's good about the way I have it versus his is I'm able to store things fairly straightforward. Uh, they're all in a drawer. I think if I did it his way, I could probably reduce the load of cards. I wouldn't have to have crazy 800 card boxes of cards anymore. And I would have a fairly good way of knowing what cards I need. So it, that's another thing that's really good about sorting in the nine card pages is I could just thumb through and go, oh, look, I'm missing that card. Now, um, a problem inherent in both of these is knowing uh, he keeps each card, each copy of each card in the same pocket. So knowing how many copies of a card you have, you still have to pull it out and count it physically, unless you have some interesting schema to fix that. And the same goes for my set too. You know, I, I don't know how many copies of a card I have. And I've been considering putting together a spreadsheet and every time I trade something and every time I get something, I can update the spreadsheet, and that's not a terribly hard thing to do. I'm starting to sort my uh, card, my decks actually into a spreadsheet so that I know what decks I have built and where they are, you know, I label. I, I like to use the OTSD boxes, but, and, and I can make new OTSD boxes, that's not a problem. I can go to the store and print out an 11 by 17 sheet and then make a new OTSD, and I've got plenty of OTSDs just lying around the house, but. I find that that does take time. So I thought, you know, it would be more interesting to keep using the OTSDs but then have somewhere noted down on a spreadsheet 
what's in the OTST. So, you know, I say that in the, the non-aligned OTSD, I have my relativity deck, that sort of thing. Um, so making a spreadsheet of all my cards might take a lot of time, and going through and trying to build a traditional deck just to bring this whole thing around was very challenging for me. I, because uh, I know I own maybe two copies of Hard Time, a physical Hard Time. I know I've bought two sets of Reflections 2.0. And so I know I have two copies, but I could only find one of them because I've got four or five Dilemma Piles at any one time, and I was able to find four of them and look through them and find my physical copies, or at least one physical copy, but I couldn't find the other one. I have no idea what I did with it. So it, w it would stand to reason to maybe keep track of do I really have two of them or did I trade one away? And I, one problem is when I, you know, when I'm done with a deck, I tend to keep it around, but then if I start to break it apart for parts, the remnants of that deck, the 90% that's left of it, tends to just go in a box that I've labeled cards to sort later. And then when I go to sort that box, it takes a good two hours to sort it all back into its place. Uh, sorting Star Trek cards. I'd love to make a sorter, right? Make a, a robot that could just sort the cards. And I think it's feasible, but I think by the time I actually built it, I, I would... I'd be an old man, or I, I would not be interested in Star Trek anymore. And I wonder if I, you know, uh, Randall Monroe, who does XKCD, he did a comic in XKCD once about how, the trade-off of time it takes to automate something versus the benefit of time saved with it. I know I'd save a lot of time if I had a magic card sorting machine that could keep track of where all my cards were, but... At the end of the day, would I have saved more time by making such a card sorter? I mean, I say right now it's feasible, but in, in reality, it'd be a very challenging problem to solve. Just to go off on a wild tangent, I would need a card that, or I'd need a camera that could take a picture of a card and with reasonable certainty figure out what card that is. That on its own is a very challenging problem. Uh, I don't think it's impossible but I think it's challenging, and I would need a sophisticated algorithm to take the photo of the card and figure out what the card is. Um, then I would need some way, without damaging the card, or if it has a sleeve or has a weird kind of sleeve, to go on, say, a conveyor belt or in some kind of contraption that could put it in an appropriate box. I, you know, I envision something like... Um, it, it wouldn't have to... It would have to be able to randomly access a card, and it would have to be able to do it in a reasonable amount of time. So, how would you do that? You would need a box, like some kind of storage box or something that could, hmm. I'm thinking, I don't even know. I've never done anything interesting with robotics before. Um, but yeah, just thinking out loud, it doesn't seem like a reasonably easy problem to solve. But I think it is doable. And I'd love to know if some magic retailer has tried to do something like this, or if at the end of the day it's just been way easier to just try to like, to like hire some college kid 
and give him minimum wage to just sort through magic all day. And I know that has been done. I've had friends who are like, yeah, I got paid basically, you know, 10 bucks an hour to just sort magic cards all day. And I'm like, that's cool. And they're like, no, you try it sometime and tell me that it's cool. And I was like, okay, never mind. So, you know, anyway. So card sorting is an interesting problem. I would love to hear any ideas anyone has. If you want to send me a PM with how you sort your cards, and if you think it's better than either of the methods I've presented here, please do so, or give me a call at 267-CALL-CPJ and leave me a voicemail. I'd love to hear about your message, and uh, do know that if you leave me a message or send me a PM, it may be used on the podcast. So, traditional card sorting, emissary, it's an exciting time to be a Star Trek player. And if you find these podcasts interesting or you think they suck, feel free to contact me and let me know why. All right, I'm going to end it here. I'm almost home, so I'm going to go have fun tonight. And I hope you are having an excellent time. Don't forget to go listen to Dan's show. And uh, we miss you, Section 31. We haven't heard you in a few weeks. Um, I'm sure you're all busy, especially with Rogue being out of town and all that. But we'd love to hear from you. And I hope Make It So has a podcast. I'd love to hear it. So... Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Corbin Johnson saying so long, and thanks for all the trek.